Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin in verse number 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that, not is, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. 17th century Puritan theologian John Owen once wrote, Let no man pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation also. These two are too closely united to be separated. He does not truly hate the fruit who delights in the root. Well, as we begin this morning, I actually want to start things differently um, than, than I normally do. And it really wasn't my intention to completely start everything differently. But um, so we're starting things differently a little bit today. Um, you see, normally what I do is I begin each message with kind of an introduction. Um, and then we work our way through the text. And somewhere in the message, we end up getting to the main point of the discussion and the main point of what the text is trying to communicate to us. Uh, and, then, and then what I try to do after that is I try to then take an illustration of the sermon. I try to validate what we're talking about through the text. And then hopefully you will leave here and not 10 minutes later, you know, forget what we've talked about. And hopefully Monday it's kind of still with you. And then maybe as the week goes on that the main point of the message is still with you. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, and, and I don't blame you because sometimes even I go, what did I talk about Sunday? I mean, it, it, I think it happens to the best of us. So, um, But today, I actually want to do things a little bit differently. What I want to do this morning is I want to jump in here and tell you right up front what the point of this particular sermon is, what the message is. I want to tell you what the point of the text is. And the reason why I want to do that is, is I, actually, as we go along, I want you to just have this in the back of your mind. I want you to be thinking about what the main point is. And so I'm going to tell you right up front what the, what the point is. And then what we'll do is from there, we'll go through the introduction and work our way through the text and whatever illustrations that we need to validate that. And my hope is this, as we work through the message today, that you will kind of, kind of keep it rolling around in your mind. And this main idea will stick with you, not just this morning, but it will also carry you through to the next week as we get ready for the next, um, next week's uh, message uh, about temptation. And uh, so that's what I hope to accomplish. And the main point today, then, of today's message is really two words, okay? It's two simple words, and the words are these. No excuses. That's the main point of today's message, right? No excuses. In fact, why don't you say that with me? 
No excuses. All right, that was pretty good, all right? Now, now think about it like we're getting ready to have lunch. No excuses. All right. Um, that's what we're actually going to talk about today. That's the title of the message, and we're going to talk about how we have no excuses when it comes to temptation. You might think that's kind of weird, but when we get to the point, you will understand what I'm, what I'm saying. So uh, now in this uh, moment, uh, we're going to actually um, begin to remind ourselves that when it comes to temptation, as we make one point after the next, just kind of like let this be something that's settled in your heart and your head, no excuses. And so um, I want to welcome you back to part two of our series titled Temptation. And the reason why, as we said, we're in this series is uh, twofold. Number one, we want to help all of us to get a biblical handle on what temptation actually is. We want to help all of us to understand what, where temptation comes from, how it works, how it affects us as believers, and how the, it affects the rest of the world around us, and what it means for us and our lives. And number two, we want to give you practical ways that you are able to deal with temptation, to be able to step out from underneath the weight of temptation, to be able to stand the trial that temptation brings into your life. Because as we talked about last week, temptation is actually a trial. It's a test in some sense. It's a trial like other trials in our lives that prove or disprove our faith. As James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and temptations of various kinds because the testing of your faith is going to produce something in you, spiritual maturity. And the one who stands underneath that test is, is blessed because it proves that he actually loves God. Temptation ultimately is a trial. Like other trials, it proves or disproves our faith. Now, as we talked about the fact that temptation is not just something that begins externally, right? There are lots of us that want to believe that temptation comes outside of us, like from the devil, but it actually, it begins inside of us. It's an internal thing. As James tells us, we are tempted because our own desires lead us away and entice us. Temptation has its roots in our own desires. It's in something that we want. Now, there are three important things that we came away with last week from that message. Number one, people People don't fall into temptation. I mean, fall into sin. I'm sorry. People don't fall into sin, right? Because sin is not something that happens to us randomly. We weren't just walking along holding Jesus' hand and then sin jumped on our head, right? Sin is a process. It begins somewhere. It begins in our desires and we allow it to take root. And then a seed gets planted. Then sin grows up to become full grown. And then number two, sin, once it becomes full grown, produces catastrophic results. James tells us that, that sin produces death. Sin produces the, uh, catastrophic results of, of spiritual death for unbelievers. And it also produces death in believers as well, whether it's physical death. We know people who have died as a result of sin, right? But it also produces financial death and relational death. And, and it causes the death of marriages and families and opportunities and even whole communities. Sin can cause death in all kinds of areas of our lives. Sin... Then, since it has a catastrophic cost, and since it begins in the earliest stages, the third thing that we, that we came away with is we must be willing to kill sin in its infancy, right? Which is in the, in the, uh, the temptation stage. As John Owen, the Puritan theologian, says, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Well, the best place to, to begin rooting, uprooting sin, the best place to kill it is when it's in the infancy stage before it grows up and actually can harm us. Now, as we talked about uh, then, 
We're going to explore in this series practical ways to deal with sin and, and, and how to kill it in our lives. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about those things in the next few weeks. But today, in part two uh, of our series, we're going to talk about the reasons why we have no excuses. That's the point of today's message. We're going to talk about why we have no excuses except to be killing the sin in our lives. You see, believers, we really don't have any excuses for not dealing with and fighting the temptation that comes against us. As followers of Jesus Christ, the children of God, who have been given the Holy Spirit inside of us, we have no excuse for allowing temptation to fester inside of us because God has provided the means for us to be able to kill sin and withstand the trials and the temptations in our lives. And this morning, I want to explore some of those means. And uh, I want to give you five reasons why we don't have an excuse whatsoever. Five reasons why we don't have an excuse not to be fighting the temptation that we have in our lives. So let's begin. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And uh, before we jump in here, let me just kind of tell you a little bit about uh, the context of this passage. As we say all over and over again, uh, if you know, we, we want to make sure that whatever we do with the text, we always keep it in context. Because when you take a text out of the context, there's a pretext. Or in other words, somebody's trying to prove a point that they've already had preconceived. We want to take the word of God for what it says. And you do that by keeping it in context. And so the, first, the, the letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was wrote, written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And if you want to understand the letter and why Paul wrote that, then you need to understand what was happening in Corinth. You see, Corinth was a city located in the southern part of Greece in the Roman province of um, Achaia. The Roman province of Achaia. And it was strategically located on the edge of a four-mile-wide isthmus that connected the Peloponnesus part of Greece to the rest of Greece. Right? This was a little strip of land strategically positioned that connected you know, part of Greece with the other part of Greece. And the reason why this is important is because anybody who traveled north and south in Greece then had to cross this isthmus and they had to go through Corinth. Not to mention that many of the ship captains, instead of going around 250 miles, would pull up to the isthmus. They would actually pick up their ships and carry them across land for four miles to save themselves that 250-mile part of the trip. And so Corinth prospered as a major port city. There was a lot of business done. There was a lot of money there, right? It was a major hub of culture. It was a major hub of economics. It was a major hub of politics. It was a major hub of, of philosophy. There was lots of money. There was lots of people. There were lots and lots of influences in Corinth. And so Corinth prospered as a major port city. Um, and, 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 and also, in, in addition to that, Right? Corinth, Corinth was the location of the Isthmian Games, all right? which is the most famous athletic event of the day except for the Olympic events, the, the Olympic Games. All right? It itself, these games, these, these athletic competitions would bring more and more people and more money to the region. Not to mention Corinth was the location of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. This attracted more people to the region because there were devoted followers of Aphrodite and there were those who wanted to then come have relations with the temple prostitutes that inhabited the temple of Aphrodite. So Corinth was this large and very affluent city, but it was also very, very corrupt. In fact, Corinth became so morally corrupt that the very name itself was synonymous with the debauchery and moral depravity. To be called a Corinthian was to say that you had absolutely no moral standards whatsoever. 
Uh, the truth is Corinth would actually make Las Vegas, what we call Sin City, look like Disneyland by comparison. That's how corrupt it was. And it was in that environment then that the church of Corinth existed, right? It was in the environment of money and influence and debauchery and corruption and moral decadence. And all of these things had an impact on the local church. In fact, there was a group of people who, who faced if there, were, if there was ever a group of people who actually faced temptation, it was them, right? If there was a group of people who might have an excuse for the sin in their lives, it was them. It was the Corinthians. They lived in a morally bankrupt city, and temptation was really, literally everywhere. And this temptation created problems, not just outside of the church for the community, but it created problems inside the church as well. In fact, the reason why Paul wrote this letter was to deal with the sin in his church because Corinth, the church at Corinth was exceptionally factional. It was divided in itself. The people there were very carnal and immature and the church um, really struggled with worldliness and the people in the str- uh, in, in it struggled with the willingness to, di- with the, will- uh, the unwillingness to divorce themselves from the culture around them. In fact, many believers in the church not only con- couldn't consistently separate themselves from their old, selfish, immoral, and pagan ways. In essence, they were really just trying to live two lives. They're trying to live two separate lives. They wanted to be Christians, but at the same time, they wanted to dabble in their desires. They, they wanted to flirt with their temptations. They wanted to follow Jesus, but at the same time, they wanted to tease their appetites too because temptation was everywhere. It was all around them. And as a result, many of these believers struggled with sin. And some of them, you know, had some of the most egregious sins. And and some of these sins were committed by members of the local church. We're talking about people that are like members of the church. In fact, one of the members of the church had, was committing incest, which, is, which, which the, even the pagans around them said, man, that's pretty bad, right? In fact, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that, not is, to, that is not tolerated by, even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Talk about disgusting. And so it's, it's, so it's, it's an understatement to say that the church in Corinth had really, really big problems, right? And Paul, he's actually writing this letter to this church to address those issues and those problems. In fact, he wrote to address sexual immorality in the church. He wrote to address disorderly worship, you know, because, because their church, their worship practices were really getting out of hand, right? And people were worshiping um, in a way that, that, that was according to their preferences and sex, instead of actually worshiping God in a way that was, was, was orderly and respectful, He wrote to address the abuse of spiritual gifts because the Corinthians were abusing their sign gifts. He wrote to address the fact that that the members of the church were were going to court and they were suing each other and they were allowing a secular, you know, pagan judge to preside over them and to make those judgments instead of coming to the church and letting the people in the church help them work their issues out in love. He also wrote to deal with the divisions that kept popping up in the church that threatened the unity of the church. Paul wrote this letter to address a number of these important issues. But what's interesting, though, is H.A. Ironside, a commentator on the Bible, once wrote that the evils that were in the Corinthians church, such as sectarianism, um, self-indulgence, and worldliness, has become prominent features of the institution that claims to be the church today. 
The Corinthian church had some very big problems and issues that stemmed from their connection to a morally corrupt culture. And I don't think that you have to look very far in our own culture, in our own world, to see the same thing. In the American church, there is division everywhere as the church argues and squabbles about every little tiny detail, right? In the American church, you see more and more people abusing their supposed spiritual gifts. I mean, we see it on TV, right? Where you have some charlatan who, who takes people's money and goes around the country. And what does he do? He stands on a stage and he knocks people to the ground, pretending like that these are acts of God, like he's actually healing people, where there's no verifiable miracle that's taking place. The American church is, is embracing sexual immorality as well. It's not just being tolerated, but it's being embraced and even celebrated. More and more churches are not simply just welcoming everyone. We welcome everyone, right? But they have become openly affirming to deviant sexual lifestyles. And not only that, the American you know, uh, church and the Christians in the American church, what do they do? They go to the court and they sue one another. Most people don't actually... Resolve their differences by coming to the church and to the brothers of the church, you know, and actually getting counsel to, to love one another and resolve their differences in love the way the Bible describes. But instead, they're content to go to small claims court. They're content to, to spread rumors and talk trash about one another. Or, you know, they're content to at least, you know, defame people in the court of public opinion. Everything we see in the Corinthian church, we also see in the American church. And Paul writes this letter to address these kinds of issues to warn the Corinthian church that not only will God judge the world and unbelievers in the world, but God will also judge the church and the believers in the church who don't put to death the sin in their lives. In fact, let's look at the text here. Beginning in verse 1, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, under God's protection, and they passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food that God, that, that God provided them, and the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Jesus Christ himself was their protector and the one who, and redeemer. Nevertheless, most of them, look at this, nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, What's, now, what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians is he's talking about to the na nation of Israel. Okay? These are just people. These are God's chosen people. Right? He's talking about the entire, talking about the time when, of the Exodus before they entered into the promised land. Right? And what Paul is saying is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were themselves subject to God's judgment. In fact, he says in verse 5, with most of them... God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now this word overthrown really kind of gives us this idea that the people's bodies were really just kind of strewn about throughout the wilderness. People were, died out there in the desert. Their bodies were buried in the desert because that's where they died, right? God judged them and they died in the desert. This was a warning that Paul was issuing. He, he, if, if God will judge his own people, the one he selected to make his own inheritance, if he will judge the Israelites for their sin, he will certainly judge those in the church too, is the point that Paul's making. And he goes on to say, now these things took place as an example for us, right? Paul is saying, we need to look what happened to them, right? We need to look at the nation of Israel, what happened to them and what they did as a result of what they did. We need to, to see this 
as an example to live by. We need to see this as an example of what not to do. We need to learn from them. Well, why do we need to learn from them? Why is he making this point? Why is he he so emphatic here? Well, the reason why he's saying this can be found in the previous chapter that helps us get a handle on the context. In chapter 9, beginning verse 24, he says, Do you not know that there is a race that all runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified or judged. You see, the point that Paul is making here is that he, that we all need to exercise self-control over our appetites that lead to sin. He is saying that we all need to finish the Christian race the right way. That we need to endeavor as followers of Christ to live lives that honor and glorify God. That is why Paul tells the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies and everything else you do with them, as a living sacrifice, holding it and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is saying that Christ, the Christian life is a journey. It is a race. It is a test. And what he's saying is that we need to work and we need to train ourselves to finish that race well. And so that we don't actually get disqualified from the, the promises and the rewards that are to come from following Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He said, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I find my, myself should be disqualified. Now, I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is talking about being disqualified. He is not talking about losing his salvation. Paul understands that he does not gain or lose his salvation by his own actions. Right? Paul, like the rest of us and like all other Christians... You know, Paul is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He knows that it's not of his works. He's the one that said it, right? Salvation is a gift of God that is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not by your abilities. It's not by your actions. It's not your obedience to the law. It is by grace through faith. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. So this disqualification he's talking about is not losing his eternal life. So then what is Paul actually then talking about? What's he working so hard for? Right? If he's not going to lose his salvation, why is he disciplining his body? What's the point that he's making here right? by this obedience to God that he wants to win some kind of race? Well, Paul, because he believes the promise and he trusts in Jesus, he has a relationship with the living God. And because Paul is saved, he values that relationship with God above all other things. Paul's greatest desire is God himself. Paul wants to be close to God. He wants to be in God's favor. He wants God's approval. He wants God's blessing. Paul wants to live this life victoriously for God. He wants to honor God in every part of his life as all Christians should. Because why? Of that amazing grace that got poured out. And so he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. He doesn't want even sin and temptation to get in the way of that. And Paul knows that if he will follow God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, God will use him. And God will use him in in amazing ways. And that God will reward him for his faithfulness in this life 
and in the life to come. And Paul knows that if he succumbs to temptation, if he allows sin to grow up in his life, that God's not going to be okay with that. Even if it is Paul. That God will judge him like he does all other. That God will chastise him like he does all his children. Right? And Paul knows that sin, when full-blown, leads to death. Now, it might not lead to spiritual death, but, we, but, but for him, he knows that, that it leads to other types of, of death as believers. He knows that, that, that sin can cost him his health. He knows it can cost him his relationships. It can cost him his reputation. And it can certainly cost him his ministry. Okay? Sin can absolutely disqualify a person from, like Paul or anybody else, from ministry, which is actually Paul's life. Paul lives to preach the gospel. It's the most, it's, that's what he does, right? And Paul is saying, I don't want to be disqualified from these things. I don't want to lose the privilege to preach the gospel. I don't want to tell people, repent of your sins and then turn right around and become disqualified because I don't deal with my own sins. Paul doesn't want to be a hypocrite. That's the context that we're talking about here. That's the starting point as he talks about the nation of Israel and how we should look to them as an example. And so Paul says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is really, really, really important to to not overlook because he didn't say that they're an example so that we might not be tempted as they were tempted. He didn't say that they're an example to us that we might not fall into sin as they fell into sin. He didn't say that they are an example to us that we might not be made to sin because of the devil the way that they were. He said they're an example to us that we might not desire the evil as they did. Remember, sin always begins, always begins in what? Our desire. Remember, James says that we were tempted when we're led away by our desires. The roots of temptation and sin is our own desires. And Paul is saying we need to look out and look at the nation of Israel as an example of what not to do and what not to desire. That we shouldn't desire the evil things that they did. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul is referring to the time that the Israelites worshipped the golden calf that Aaron had crafted for them at their request. And this worship included a feast and it included drinking and dancing and, and some would say led to debauchery. And so in essence, they partied themselves into sin. Moses was on the mountain talking to God, you know, taking notes about what God has to say. And the Israelites are down the hill parting themselves into trouble. And before we judge them, I think some of us know what that's like. I think we've probably done that a couple times in our own lives. Paul says, don't do that, (laughs) right? Don't follow your desires into sin. And then he says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul is pointing out that there is a catastrophic consequence for sin, including sexual sin. And he says, don't follow your evil desires to do that. And then verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You see, the Israelites grumbled and they complained against God, the very God that rescued them from slavery, the very God that freed them from 400 years of oppression. 
The same God that provided for their every single need. Their clothes didn't wear out. They were fed every single day. They grumbled and complained against God. And, and you know what they, they grumbled and complained about? They didn't grumble and complain because of the rules. They, they weren't grumbling and complaining because God says don't worship idols or you know, engage in sexual immorality. They grumbled because of food and water. They grumbled because they got tired of the food that God had given them to eat, right? Food they didn't have to work for, food they didn't have to search for, food they didn't have to cook, right? It was there every day, right? That's what they grumbled about. They wanted something else other than what God was giving them. Their basic desire was food, and that basic desire caused them to sin against God. And before you pass judgment on them, how many times have you grumbled? Man, this house isn't big enough. Oh, my internet connection's too slow. Oh, you know, I just don't have enough clothes to wear. You know, there's just nothing to do in this town. Man, today's just too cold. Oh, man, it's too hot today. Oh, man, the wind blows all the time, way too much. Oh, I really wish we had a breeze so to cool this place off a little bit, right? We all are guilty of the same thing. We've all been blessed by God in so many ways, right? So many ways. We could all sit down here and make a list, you know, 10 pages long of our blessings, but we don't focus on the blessings. We focus on what we don't have. We focus on the stuff that we're not getting. Our appetites are for the things that we don't have and that cause us to grumble and sin against God. And so what we see here in this text that are the sins and temptations that the Israelites, God's people faced and that they were prone to. And Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying these things happened, right? And they didn't just happen to random people, right? This isn't just some made up story. These are God's people, and these things happened and their sins and their consequences were written down and recorded for our instruction, for us to learn from. There's a reason why they were written down. And Paul says that God made an example out of them so we could learn from them. So the first reason why you and I don't have an excuse to fall into sin is because God has already given us a clear example of what not to do. Paul says... Here's a clear example of what happened to God's people. If you don't, you know, if they don't control themselves, if they don't control their appetites. That's what Paul's saying. Here's what happens to God's people if they don't control themselves and they don't control their appetites. He said, here's a clear example of the consequences of sin found in the Old Testament. And the example is about believers, by the way. Because they... Because you have to understand, these, these were people that were rescued by God. God saved them from Egypt, a picture of salvation. God drew them close to himself in a personal relationship. These were God's people that he provided for them and took care of them. This is a picture of the church. But it says, nevertheless, with most of them, the majority of them, most of them, God was not pleased. And he says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. God saved them. But they suffered consequences of their sin. 
They didn't get to the promised land. They didn't get the reward. Their sin cost them that. They were disqualified from that. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute. That's not about unbelievers. Paul's describing the unbelievers of the nation. This doesn't really apply to us. Well, actually, that's incorrect. Because guess who else suffered the consequences of his sin and didn't get to enter into the land? Moses himself. Moses himself did not enter into the land. Moses, now understand, was the most quoted person in the entire Bible, by the way, right? His writings are quoted in the other, in the other parts of the Bible more than any other author, right? He's the one that God had chose to set his people free. He's the one that God chose to lead the nation of Israel. He's the one that God chose to write the first five books of the Bible. Moses was the man who had face-to-face conversations with God, Moses was the man who met with God on Mount Sinai where God gave him the law. Moses was the man who performed mind-blowing miracles. I mean, he parted the Red Sea, right? Moses was God's messenger and the greatest Jew that has ever lived. That Moses became disqualified from entering into the land because of his pride and his sin. The Bible tells us the closest he ever got was he got to stand basically on a hill and look at it from a distance. God gave him that. That was it. And then he died and was buried. He died without ever receiving the reward that was promised. Now, are you going to tell me that Moses wasn't a believer? Moses was a believer, right? You see, Moses didn't lose his salvation, right? But he absolutely suffered the consequences of his own sin. And he stands as an example to us with the rest of the nation of Israel. And as Paul says, therefore, let, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying, don't become complacent just because you put that label on your life, Christian. Don't become complacent because you have a relationship with God. Don't think that you are beyond the power of sin and temptation. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you go to church and you go to small group Bible study, that, that you're above it, right? Moses himself fell. God's people fell. And they fell out of favor with God. Now, Moses and the nation of Israel stand as an example to us, an example that we need to take heed of, an example that we need to learn from, an example that we need to take seriously. Because we don't have an excuse to allow our desires to lead us away the way they do. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, another reason why you don't have an excuse is because the temptation that you face, the desires you have to deal with, are not unique to you. They're common to all of mankind. And this right here is a truth that we tend to lose sight of because we live in an individualistic culture. We live in a world that focuses and encourages us toward individuality. We live in a culture that celebrates our individuality and our individual stories and our own experiences and understand, right? I'm not knocking individuality. In fact, I think on some level, individualism is good. I mean, I personally think that people need to be individualistic enough to take personal responsibility for their lives, that they need to take personal responsibility to take care of themselves. That they work to improve their own lives is not to be the burden to other people. That they don't make excuses for their shortcomings or for their failures. I think that there's a certain amount of individualism that is absolutely healthy. I think that we should all be one of a kind in a sense. 
But we live in a world that doesn't promote individual responsibility. We live in a world that promotes individual expressions of our experience. We think that our experiences and our view of the world are unique and individual to us and us alone. And what I mean by that is we think that, our, that, that we experience things that no one else has ever experienced before. We think that we go through things that nobody else has ever been through before. And then we tell ourselves as a result that no one knows what we're going through. And no one knows, you know, what our struggles are. And no one knows what we've been through. And no one understands how we feel. And no one, you know, knows what it's like to be us because our experiences are unique to us. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Paul says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Why does he say this? Because we all have common experiences. We all experience similar things. We all know what it's like to be hungry. We all know what it's like to feel lonely. We all know what it's like to experience laughter. We all know what it's like to be rejected. We all know what it's like to be self-conscious when you walk into a, a room, a new place. We have common experiences. We might not experience everything in the same degree or have the same things in, in, in combination, but we all have common experiences. And so there's not a desire that's unique to you. There's not a temptation that, that you have faced that someone else has not faced. Okay? I might not have faced all the same temptations you have, and I might not struggle with the exact same desires that you do, but someone else has. Right? Your temptation is common to man. It is not unique to you. We live in a world that tells you that you're so unique that nobody could possibly understand what your combined experiences are telling you. So therefore, your struggle with sin is your own struggle and nobody should be able to tell you what is right or wrong or how you need to deal with that sin. And nobody should tell you, you know, or, or have anything to say about what you're going through or what you're experiencing or what you're dealing with. That's what culture tells us. And many people have really kind of bought into this notion. In fact, if you, you know, try to explain to a lot, some people in our culture what the Bible says about sin and temptation and how people are to live, right? You'll be met with, you don't know me. You, you don't know, you know what I've been through. You don't know what's going on in my, my life. You can't possibly know what, where I've been and what I've been through. So you don't have any right to say anything at all to me about what's right and wrong. And the reality is that's just rubbish. It's just a smokescreen. Whether you're battling temptation because of greed, there are other people that have been through that same thing. All temptations are common to man. Whether you're battling the temptation to gossip, whether you're battling the temptation to manipulate your circumstances, whether you're battling the temptation to exact revenge on someone, whether you're battling temptation to, to succumb to um, same-sex attraction, and then you want to justify and say, well, I was just born this way. You don't understand me, right? The reality is there's no, not one temptation that is not common to mankind. All of mankind is tempted essentially in the same ways. You were not unique in your experience in the sense that someone else has not been through what you've gone through. You're not unique in the sense that there is not somebody out there who hasn't overcome what you need to overcome. All of mankind is tempted in the same way. Every temptation that you have ever faced or ever will face has already been faced by millions of people before you. And here's the thing. There are people who have already passed the test. There are people who have been able to stand up underneath that temptation, which means there are people in the world 
Who've been able to overcome the very same temptations that you now face? What does that mean to you then? What it means is that there's hope. It means that it can be done. It means that you can do it. It means that there is, in fact, a way out of it. So the first reason you have no excuse to not be killing sin is the Bible gives us an example to follow. The Bible gives us examples of of the temptation and and how to fight against it. The Bible gives us the the examples of how to, um, uh, to fight the fight. And then the second reason that we have no excuse is that the truth is that there's no temptation that's not common to man. We're all going through the same kinds of things. Whatever you go, you're going through, others have gone where you have been and have overcome the things that you need to overcome. Now, the third reason why you have no excuse, and this is probably the most important. Okay? It's the most important because it has the most power. So the third reason why you don't have an excuse to fight sin and temptation is because God is faithful. That's what Paul says. God is faithful. Paul says that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation it will also provide you a way to escape so that you may be able to endure it. You see, ultimately, the reason why you can fight off the desires and why you can stand up under temptation is because God, the one who rescued you, is faithful. And he has the power and the ability to help you through it. Notice what Paul says here. God will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability. Hear me on this. This is the fourth reason why you have no excuse. This is a promise of God. If you belong to him, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to stand up under the temptation. God himself will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, right, to turn away from temptation. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. That's not right. I fall into temptation and I don't have the ability to fight it off. I mean, God, if he gives me the ability to stand under temptation, then why do I give in to temptation sometimes? Well, the reason why we give in to temptation is because we choose to give in to it. We need to understand that. Temptation is rooted in our own desires. It's what we want, in a sense. And when we are tempted, when we are lured away by our own desires, we have a choice. We either choose our desires and dabble in our desires and flirt with temptation, or we choose to run to God. As we said last week, the reason why we fall into temptation is because what is tempting us in the moment is something that we want or we in the moment value more than what we value God. When, when, when we drink too much, we're valuing the buzz more than we value God. When you flirt, you're valuing attention of that other person more than you value God. When you sacrifice your family so you can stay at work, you're valuing money more than you are valuing God. When you spread that rumor, you're valuing the acceptance you're getting from the person that you're spreading the rumor to than you are God. In essence, You're choosing the things that tempt you over God. And make no mistake, right? We're the ones that do the choosing, right? God gives us the ability to choose differently. God gives us the ability to turn to him. God, through his blood, through the blood of Christ, saved us, brought us into a personal relationship with him, and then filled us with his Holy Spirit, and then gave us his word, and provided us this church family to do life with. 
That he's given us all the tools that we need. We have the ability to pass the test. We have the ability to choose differently. In fact, Paul says that. He tells us that. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Which is, by the way, the fifth reason why you have no excuse. God is faithful. He gives us the ability to withstand the temptation. He always provides a way out. God always provides us a way out of temptation. So we have the ability to choose differently. So we cannot honestly say that temptation was just too strong. Oh, we just couldn't fight it. We just couldn't resist. No, we just didn't choose the way out. We just chose the value of temptation. We chose that desire over God. That's why Paul is so emphatic. That's why he says, I do not run aimlessly, right? Because I don't box as beating the air. I don't just run around just to run around. I'm running with a purpose. I'm training with a purpose. And I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm getting ready for a real fight. He says, I'm, I dis- discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul makes it clear, I'm going to value God above everything else. I'm going to pursue God as my personal obsession. I'm going to train my mind. I'm going to train my body. I'm going to do everything I can to keep my eyes on God so I don't allow temptation to win me over. That's where it is. That's the strength of what God gives us. Right? That's how we stand up. If we desire him and value him above all other things, if we find our greatest joy in God instead of relationships, if we find our greatest satisfaction in him instead of sex, if we'll find the greatest fulfillment in God instead of material things, then there's not a temptation in the world that can overtake us. Because when sin comes, desire wells up inside of us. God gives us a way out. And the way out is him. He is the prize, right? The way out is to follow him. The way out is to engage him in his word. The way out is to worship him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The way out is to take him at his promises. The way out of temptation is is to desire God more than the things that tempt you. If you'll pursue him with all your strength. You see, I don't know if you realize it, but this particular section here, if you look in the ESV, it's titled Warning Against Idolatry. In fact, the very next verse, Paul says, Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. That's kind of like the conclusion of everything he's been talking about. The very next section after that is titled, Do All Things for what? The glory of God. You see, at the heart of temptation is is idolatry. When we fall into temptation, we're making idols of the things that we desire. Because we're desiring them and we're loving them more than we desire and love God. That's what idolatry is. It's the very definition of it. So when we can succumb to temptation to spend money, you know, that you don't have on things that you don't need, you're worshiping at the idol of materialism. When you succumb to the temptation to flirt and cross lines with someone who is not your spouse, you're making an idol of sex. When you succumb to the temptation to help other people for your own glory so people think highly of you, You're making an idol of your own pride. And then when you refuse to take God and his word about things like marriage and sex, you make an idol of your own sexual identity. Whenever we desire something more to God, we turn it into an idol. Whatever we hunger for, 
more than we hunger for God becomes an idol to us. And that's what happened to God's chosen people, the Israelites. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, right? And the people are like, Aaron, hey, make us an idol that we can worship so we can party. Because we desire more than actually, you know, having a relationship with that God that's up there on the mountain. Later on, the Israelites were like, wow, those Moabite women are really attractive. Let's, let's have relationships with them, even though God says, don't do that, right? They desired those women more than they desired God's approval. They made an idol of their sexual desire. They even made an idol of their stomachs. I don't know if you realize that, but the Bible, you know, says that they grumbled against God. Why did they grumble? He delivered them from their slave masters. He provided their every single need, right? He was with them visibly in a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at nighttime, right? They had the tabernacle where you could see that God's presence was there. They were his special people, but they grumbled against God. In fact, they said, that, why don't we go back to Egypt? Let's go back to our slave masters. We were better off there. Well, Why? I mean, why would they possibly want to go back to Egypt? What would be the thing that motivated them? Well, they want to go back to Egypt so they could eat cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlics and garlic. That's why they grumbled against God. Okay? The Israelites want to go back to Egypt because of vegetables. Okay? Think about that. They had a desire for fresh vegetables. And that desire caused them to sin against God. You talk about a good desire going bad right? I mean, hear me on this. The Israelites made an idol of their stomachs. They wanted to satisfy their desire in their stomachs so much they're willing to go back to slavery, right? And turn their back on everything that God had done for them to that point. Their desire for vegetables was greater than their desire for God. And you might say that sounds stupid, right? Because it is stupid. But all of idolatry ultimately is stupid, all of our desires that lead us away from God and that cause us to sin are stupid. I don't know anybody that hasn't like gotten themselves into trouble and go, that was stupid, right? We all do that, right? Anything that causes us to turn it back against God is, is stupid. Any desire that you have more than the desire for God is itself stupid, Okay. Because how in the world are you going to spurn the love of God for things like food or for sex or for acceptance or material possessions or the right to, to, to get even with somebody? Will you guys please be quiet back there? Thank you. I mean, it's just downright silly. But yet, that's what we do. We make it even worse, right? What makes it even worse than that is we don't really even have an excuse for it, right? None. We have an example to live by in the word of God. There's no temptation that's unique to us, right? Other people have overcome the same things that we have. God himself is faithful to help us. He don't allow us to be tempted more than what we can absolutely handle. And God makes a way always out of the, out of the temptation. We absolutely have no excuses. And it's really stupid, to desire something more than God. Now, with all that, what is, what's my point here? My point is, as I think now we finally have a pretty good handle on what temptation actually is. Temptation is 
is the outworking of our desires for things other than God. It's kind of at the heart. It's when our desires entice us to begin to lead us away from thing, away from God. We're led away by something else. That's what temptation is. And this temptation then can grow as our desire allows the seeds to be planted in our hearts, right? And, and as our desire for things other than God grows, sin becomes full grown in our lives. And when it happens and sin becomes fully grown, it produces death. It comes at a cost. We see the example of that in the Israelites, in their lives. We see it in the lives of other people around us. We even see it in our own lives. Sin causes not just spiritual death in unbelievers, but it produces physical death. It causes the death of marriages and relationships and finances and careers and opportunities and reputation and even intimacy with God. Sin has a huge cost to it. But number four then, we don't have to be a slave to that. It's really what we're learning. We don't have to be a slave to that. We don't have to be a slave to our desires. We don't have to be victims of our temptation because we can stand the trial. In fact, we don't even have an excuse not to. We've been given examples in the Bible of what happens to people when they fail in their temptation. And we're told in the Bible that all of this temptation is really just common experience with other people everywhere. We're promised that God is faithful. He'll help us deal with the temptation because he won't allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. And God is always there to give us a way out and to escape. And so in short, or in summary, temptation is ultimately a test of our desire for God or for other things. And God, by his grace, gives us the ability to overcome the test so we don't have any excuses. That's really what temptation is. Now, you might be thinking, well, great. What do we do about it? I mean, you said, you, Sherman, that part of this purpose of this series is, you know, helping us to be able to overcome sin, right? You tell us how we can overcome temptation. So how do we overcome it? Well, I've got good news and, and I have bad news. The good news is the Bible is full of, of practical advice and admonitions to help you overcome sin. The bad news is you're going to have to wait till next week because <laughs> we're... Uh, <laughs> Because we have a lot to talk about still, and uh, we don't have enough time to do it today. Uh, but, but don't worry, I'm not going to leave you empty-handed, okay? I'll actually give you something to chew on and something that's actually practical that you can, that you can hold on to. Um, what I want to share with you as we wrap up is just uh, is a couple of important things. Number one, I think the way that you, you help yourself overcome sin is you need to remember what the cost is. And one way that you remind yourself you know, the cost is, is memorizing and repeating John Owens' words, be killing sin or it be killing you. In fact, let's just say that together. Be killing sin or it be killing you. Right. That's how you remind yourself of the cost. I mean, believe me, if you will keep the cost in mind, it'll certainly change the way that you perceive temptation. Number two, remind yourself what temptation is. And the way you do that is just memorize this. Temptation is anything I desire more than God. All right, let's say that together. Temptation is anything I desire more than God. And number three, remind yourself that you have no excuses. And the way you do that is memorize this. God is faithful to help me to overcome any and all temptation. Let's say that together. God is faithful to help me overcome any and all temptation. Okay. These right here, these three truths are things that you can absolutely hold on to. 
right? They come right out of the Bible. They're things that you can hold on to. Write them down if you want to. Put them on a five, you know, three by five card. Put them on your mirror. You know, put them in the car. Put them where you can see them. Memorize them. They're really, really short. Um, in fact, uh, I, I really want to get a t-shirt. I've seen somebody, they make t-shirts that say, be killing sin or it'd be killing you. I think it'd be cool to have. But, but here's, the, here's the point. Use these things as tools to remember that God has empowered you to be victorious over sin. God didn't just leave you here to your device. He didn't save you so that you can just continue to fall down and bust your head over and over again. God has given you the Holy Spirit in your life. He's given you his word. He's given you your church family. He's given you tools that you need to overcome them. You just need to remind yourself of that. And so again, um, I think this is a good part, a good place for you to start retraining your own thoughts. Be killing sin or sin be killing you. Temptation is anything I desire more than God. God is faithful to help me to overcome any and all temptations. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you haven't left us to our own devices. Though there are times, Lord, I'll admit, I feel like that I am. There are times I do get caught up in my own head, in my own mind, in my own life, in my own thoughts. And sometimes I feel like nobody understands me or nobody understands what I'm going through. But I realize that's just the enemy just trying to cloud my judgment because your word says that there's not anything that's not common to man. There's not a trial that anybody's faced that, 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 that others haven't faced. There's not, there's not a circumstance in my life that is so catastrophic that there's not someone else that's not able to identify with it. There's not a temptation in my life that isn't so strong that someone else isn't overcome it, Lord. And Lord, let us take you at your word. You said, you said you're faithful. You said you will not allow us to be tempted more than we can stand. And that you said that you'll make a way out. Lord, give us the eyes to see the way out as we encounter those temptations, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's, you know, careers, whether it's, you know, ambition, whether it's our pride, whether it's gossip, whatever it is, Lord, help us to see how we're tempted, Lord, and help us to see the way out of that temptation. Help us to glorify you, Lord, in our lives. Help us to desire you more than, than the things that tempt us. And Lord, we know, we, we, we accept that we're not going to be perfect here now, that this is not heaven yet. And we know that there's a process of sanctification and sometimes we're going to stumble and fall so that way we can see where we're falling short and we need to get up. Well, then, Lord, when we fall short, help us to repent and get up and then pursue you all the more. Help us all to make you the deepest desire of our hearts. Help, help us all to desire you above anything else and everything else and that then our life would then be poured out of that filter and lens. Help us to be the people that you're calling us to and the church that you're calling us to and help us to go out into the community and the world and share the hope of Christ with all those who need it today. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.